Welcome to Season 5 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, refreshing and captivating interviews with sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Mike Greenberg to Ryan Dempster, Dan McNeil to Sarah Kustak, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories some you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow or subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. They can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. And by BetUS, America's favorite sports book. Check them out at BetUS.com. This week, we feature longtime Bulls player and radio analyst Bill Wennington. If you look at the Bulls season from the start, so if we go back to September and say, you know what, uh, the Bulls are going to finish sixth in the Eastern Conference. They're not going to be in a play-in game. Uh, they're going to go five games against the defending champs, the Milwaukee Bucks. How do you feel about that? And I think pretty much everyone at that point would have said, all right, that's good. That's a great first step. The hard part is that they played so well in the beginning, back back in January and the beginning of February, and they were doing so well, I think a lot of people raised their expectations to something that was really unattainable. Do you realize Bill Wennington has been connected to the Bulls for nearly 30 years? This affable seven-footer was part of the Bulls' second three-peat, meshing with the likes of Jordan, Pippen, and Rodman, and he's also meshed exceedingly well with his Bulls broadcast partner, Chuck Swirsky. He's a native of Montreal, so naturally, hockey, right? So, Bill Wennington, tell me a story I don't know. Well, George... Uh, well, I, I, I love all sports, and maybe you don't know that uh, basketball is not my first love or uh, as far as sports go. I grew, grew up in Montreal, Canada, and I could skate at the age of two. So I was a hockey player, and I wasn't a good hockey player, but I, I played a lot of hockey uh, growing up. We uh, played pastime. You know, you know, things when we were kids were different. We didn't have organized sports quite the same as it is today. So we'd play with our friends in the street. We'd get our skates and run down to the local ice rink in Canada, which was outside and play hockey all the time. But uh, I like to tell people I was uh, so bad at hockey. I started because that the, the only other four, four best skaters on the ice could uh, skate with me to, to cover up for me. But I was uh, good enough to play. I played on some travel teams, but the lower travel teams, I didn't play on, uh, the, the A-team, so to speak. But uh, I had a lot of fun growing up playing hockey uh, when I was a kid. I would think that anybody born in Canada would likely be wearing a pair of skates at one time in his or her life. Pretty much. I think it's everyone, especially when I was growing up, that was, you know, hockey was the big thing and skating was everything. And I, I actually even remember going down memories before I could skate uh, learning to skate and the skates were almost, if you remember the old roller skates where you had the four wheels, well, the skates we learn on had almost like four blades and you skate on every, and everybody used them. And so I, I remember those. And I remember at two years old, being able to skate around on a regular set of blades. By the time you stopped playing, were you too big then? That's a real funny story. I was 11 years old, and I had a size 
13 foot and skate, which my foot was crammed into. By the time I was 12, it was a 14. I could no longer fit into the skates and I could no, no longer find another pair of skates. So I could no longer play hockey. And I remember that winter, early in the winter, uh, I was swimming at the Point Claire pool in uh, the West Island of Montreal. At the time, it was a, a great, a big pool and one, one of the pools that the Canadian Olympic swim team and diving team practiced at. But I was there for swim lessons and my uh, brother and sister and I, and my mother would let us swim, free swim afterwards. And we'd hang out at the pool basically for half the day or whatever. And I was fooling around with some kids that we met. And all of a sudden, uh, this gentleman was there and started talking to me. And I was, again, I was... 11 and a half years old, 12 years, almost 12 years old. My birthday's in April. And he thought I was 16 or 17 years old and asked if I've ever played basketball. <laughs> I said, no. And that's how it all started. Really? Yes. And I, so he introduced me, he went and started talking to my mom and I started playing for uh, uh, the West Island. Uh, what, what the West Island Wiseman is what they called it. And it was, I guess it was kind of like travel or, AAU basketball at the beginning, but it wasn't really the same thing. And there was a little house league that we played in that was not far from my house. So that was it. It was just a chance bumping into someone at the swimming pool. Otherwise, I'm sure I would have started playing basketball somewhere else down the line, but probably not for another year or two. Because to that point, George, really, I had never touched a basketball. Uh, gym class, we didn't shoot baskets ever in gym class growing up. So I was in sixth, sixth grade, and I'd never even shot a basketball at a hoop yet. Wow, that's amazing. Now, in, in sixth grade, how tall were you? I don't know in sixth grade, but I do know in seventh grade, I was six foot two. Oh, my. In eighth grade, I was six five. In ninth grade, I was six nine. And, in ninth uh, grade, you were six nine. I just want to tell you something, okay? <laughs> yes. In ninth grade, which of course was the first year of high school, I was four nine. <laughs> you were two feet taller than I was at our same age. I hate to admit that. Uh, <laughs> here, well, I'll admit something to you then, since you did that. We, uh, when I first started playing basketball, I was six foot two, and I was twelve years old. And on the house league, we played on eight foot baskets. And on the house league, I was okay. I was pretty good, um, you know, because I was six foot two, and pretty much everyone else was, you know not even five feet yet because I was so good there. They put me on the travel team, which was, as I said, the wise men team, uh, YMCA, YMCA travel team. We played on 10 foot baskets. The most points I scored in a game once was four points. I George, I was horrible. And when I talked to people and do motivational talks, I said, I learned the most important thing in my life, uh, in my life about basketball that, that year. And I tell them that story how bad I was, but I loved it. I love playing. I love competing. I love uh, being on a team with the guys. And it, that was my inspiration to keep working at it and trying to get better uh, every day. And I started uh, working on my game. And uh, albeit in Canada, it's different than it, it would be here in New York and, or in the States, rather. And I found that out as soon as I moved to New York. But uh, that was the catalyst to make me better. I learned that I loved the game. It was fun for me to play, and, and I enjoyed it. Let me go back to last season and first the playoffs in the series with the Bucks. The Bulls won a game, albeit Bill, it was more like stealing it since the Bucks lost Bobby Portis and Chris Middleton in that game too. That said, 
They were battered and outclassed. George, I would agree with that. Uh, I think if you look at the Bulls season from the start, so if we go back to September and say, you know what? Uh, the Bulls are going to finish sixth in the Eastern Conference. They're not going to be in a play-in game. Uh, they're going to go five games against the defending champs, the Milwaukee Bucks. How do you feel about that? And I think pretty much everyone at that point would have said, all right, that's good. That's a great first step. The hard part is that they played so well in the beginning, back, back in January and the beginning of February, and they were doing so well, I think a lot of people raised their expectations to – something that was really unattainable uh, for the team that we had and the progress that we were starting to make or the journey that we we're starting. So in the end, I think we, they are, the bulls are where they're supposed to be. Well, right now with the bulls, it's one season at a time, one step, we made the playoffs. Now we could reevaluate. What do we have? What don't we have? What can we do to get better? And how can we go about doing that? So losing, whether we were healthy or not to Milwaukee, I think was probably going to happen. They're real good. And you have to remember oh, yeah. too, uh, Middleton got hurt. Uh, Bobby Portis did miss that you know, most of that game too. But uh, you saw that Grayson Allen kind of rose to the top. The cream rises to the top, so to speak. As much as everyone in Chicago hates to hear that and say that, as do I. He's, he's a, a Bill Lambeer type character on another team. But he did what he needed to do, and he rose to the top. So they have another weapon they can use when they are healthy. Bobby Portis the same way. This whole year for Bobby Portis has been phenomenal. So it would have been a really tall task for the Bulls, healthy or not, to, to beat the Milwaukee Bucks in this first round. Well, I said this before the season began, Bill. After all the moves were made, they're good enough not to be good enough. So how can they be good enough to be a legitimate contender for the NBA title, say, in the near future? Well, that's kind of a loaded question. What do you mean by very near future? Do you mean next year? If, if you're saying next year, well, then obviously they're going to have to go out and get a, a superstar, a three-point shooter, and, and someone else because of what we saw this year. But if you're talking about building for two years from now, maybe three years from now, uh, and again, we know, all know the sports window. You, you build yourself windows, and when you – signed DeMar DeRozan, mm -hmm. uh, an older player, you're giving your, you gave yourself basically three to four years, depending on what you want to do in the, uh, after that last year. But you need to have obviously better, more consistent shooting. Obviously with the lack of Lonzo Ball, when he was out point guard position and a uh, player with the ability to push the ball up the, the floor and play with more pace uh, is needed. Uh, we found out that, you know, I think the Bulls rebounded well, this season, if you go and look at the numbers, their, their numbers aren't horrible, but getting physical and big rebounds, I think, is, is something that they need, need to work on. They need to have that physical and mental toughness on the floor a little bit more, uh, whether that can be learned or you need to infuse a player or two to, to get that going. But again, part of that might be with all the injuries we had this year. I think we're on the right track. Do I think we're there right now? No, obviously, you saw what happened this year. We're, we're not there yet, but the steps have to be taken. I think Io grew tremendously this season. I thought he was tired by the end of the season, worn out. Uh, but we have to hopefully have a, a season next year where we can add to this team a little bit. We need to have a deeper bench. Uh, guys that can be able to play to, to rest up uh, starters a little bit more in, in a, in a seven-game series. There's a few pieces we need. I think they can find uh, somehow this summer. And we'll see what happens.
Well, considering these players, Vooch, DeRozan, Levine, Ball, Williams, Caruso, and Io, do the Bulls need a player better than all of them? Um, need? I think every team would want one. Did you mention Zach in that too? Yes, but that raises yet another question, particularly with his balky knee. Do you give Zach a max deal? That's that's a great question, and and fortunately, I don't have to answer answer it uh, for real. I mean, I, I think I love uh, I love Zach. I love what he's done. Uh, I think if you go back and look at this season, the way he's played, I mean, who would would was it fair to say that Demar Derozan was our best player this year? Yes. And then, uh, then, then that's your answer. But you also have to take into consideration two. Th- this is twofold. Now, how bad was Zach's knee? How much did it really affect him? Because I, he was really affected the second half of the season. And obviously, going into the summer, we have to find out what's going on with his knee and and how is that going to affect him going forward. So that's a big question. I think we have to answer that first. Uh, I, I love Zach. I love what he can do. I think he can help us tremendously. Uh, I think the way he finished the season, it would be hard to justify a max salary. But the way he started the season, he was right on the cusp of that. So uh, that's something that's going to have to hopefully be figured out relatively soon as we move forward, because you would like to see growth in this team. Uh, Would I like to see Zach back on this team? 100% yes. And what exactly does that entail? Uh, that's why AK and Mark Eversley get paid the big dollars. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. We return with Bill Wennington on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. It seems like you have the right demeanor and personality for the job that you have now, which of course is an analyst on Bulls Radio. First with Neil Funk, and then five years later, you joined Chuck Swirsky. That was what, back in 2008. And we've had Chuck on this podcast, and not only is he an outstanding play-by-play guy, he's an outstanding person as well. Chuck is a, gr- a phenomenal broadcaster, and he's a great person and a, and a very good friend. George, I've been working my first five years with uh, Neil Funk, who, are, who I owe a lot in teaching me about broadcasting basketball games. But you change partners, and you just you really don't know what to expect. But the professionalism and the prep, the, the way Charlie gets prepared for games, and his retention of knowledge 
is absolutely amazing. 50-50 ball. Caruso has it with a wraparound dribble drive, and we got a blocking foul on Drew Holiday. And, yeah, and that, that was brought on because he pushed the ball up the floor. He got back. Drew Holiday couldn't get back. Again, Bulls playing with a little bit more urgency right now, pushing the ball up the floor. And Milwaukee's going to make mistakes, as all teams do when they're trying to get back in transition. They got a guy that just remembers everything he sees, reads, hears. Uh, and is able to recall it on the spot. I, I'll remember things, but you're going to have to pull it out of me. And he can, in a bat and a eye. And I, in the beginning, I wasn't sure about my sense of humor and his, but uh, he's just like me. He likes to have fun. He likes to laugh. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He does. Don't get me wrong. He takes his job very seriously and, and wants to be uh, the best that he can be night and day. But he understands what he's doing and likes to have fun. So uh, he puts up with my humor and actually enjoys it uh, and, and, and lets me be me, which is phenomenal. I think that's part of why it works is because we can both be each other uh, on the air. And uh, I, I hope that people enjoy listening to us, that we're uh, letting them understand the game a little bit better, what's going on on the radio, but uh, also enjoying it and having a little bit of fun while you're driving in your car or sitting at work or somewhere where you can't watch the game. I remember asking Bob Costas how many interviews he did for the Last Dance series on ESPN back in 2020. And I was surprised to hear him say, not many, maybe a dozen. This was definitely not the case with you. Tell me a story I don't know. Just how many interviews you actually did. And may I say I was among those begging for your time. First of all, that was a terrific time. It came obviously in this country with a pandemic and around the world. It came at a great time and it, it gave me the opportunity to relive some of the so-called heydays, uh, glory years, as Bruce Springsteen likes to say, down memory lane and, and go down that trip. He was pushing us all to be better because he wanted to win. And guess what? It worked. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. If you don't want to live that regimented mentality, then you don't need to be alongside of me because I'm going to ridicule you until you get on the same level with me. Honestly, George, I was doing uh, a Zoom call a day and could have been doing three or four pretty much every, every time an episode ran. And I, I could have been doing Zoom calls all the time. So I, start, I, I started limiting them. And then, of course, podcasts and stuff. I, I couldn't give you an exact number, but it was a lot. It, it was fun, and there were some good ones. I mean, obviously, you get some national ESPN. Uh, the, I was on Good Morning America. I, I mean, it was everything. It was it was it was it was a lot of fun, but it was a busy time, but uh, very enjoyable because it got to, to relive some of the heyday. So, what did you think overall of the series? I liked it, and again, you have to understand perspective. Like you and I could watch something, and we'll like different things about it, and actually see it differently. So you ha I do understand it was Michael's perspective. Uh, I think everything in the show was accurate because it happened. And it's just all how you want to put a twist on it. We talked about Scotty a little bit, and Scotty was portrayed in it as being maybe, maybe a little bit selfish. But we all understood as teammates that it was business. And it was, you know, we understand that you can only play this game for so many years, and Scotty wanted to get the most out of it. And you only have a certain amount of time to get it. So... Would I have handled it that way? No. Would other players have handled it that way? Maybe not. But uh, that's the way he handled it. We all understood and knew that we needed Scotty to win. You know Michael, of course, was notorious for gambling and with his teammates. So dare I ask, 
did you ever win money from him? Uh, George, that's another good story. Uh, <laughs> they had their games of tonk going on in the back in the, in the back of the plane, and uh, one day I can't remember the u- the usual crew: Scotty, Ron Harper, I think Randy Brown was back there once in a while. When Jack Haley was on the team, he'd go back there and play a little bit, and obviously Michael was there. And there was one time that someone was gone and couldn't play. And I, we, you know, we'd all been talking and I think uh, Michael knew that I played Tonk. So he came up and said, Hey, Billy, we need one. Come up, come back and play. And I, and I think he thought that I was going to be a fish. And when the game ended, I had won 150 bucks. Everyone else broke even except Michael. And I'm talking $150. I'm not talking thousands. We're talking mm-hmm. $150, which was, is really nothing. Uh, especially for, for Michael at that time, he was not happy. <laughs> he was not, he was not happy. And he was like, get the, get the bleep out of here. You're not playing with us anymore. I said, Oh, I can't believe that. You mean he never invited you back? No, he wouldn't let me play. But <laughs> I was, I came back a couple of times. He goes, no, you can't play. You're out. Get out. I was like, all right. So finally, again, someone else was gone. He comes back and he sent someone up. Scotty came out and said, come on, Billy, you gotta come back and play. So I came back and play. And at the end of the, at the end of that game, I had lost like $200, $250 and Michael had won. He goes, now you'll never play again. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, hey, but it was, it was one of two things. Obviously he understood that I, I wasn't going to wager thousands of dollars. So I wasn't in that game and he didn't want to lose, but at least that way he could walk away. He won. So. It, it was good, but he is competitive. George, he was one of the most competitive guys that I know. And I like that about him because it, it shows how much he cares about winning. And it's his drive that helped make him, in my opinion, the best that ever played. People talk about how good he is. And I think they're underestimating. I really, I really do. What he d- did and, and, you know, you want to talk about him being hard on players. Well, he was hard on them because he was selfish and he, and he wanted to be the best on the best team, but he wanted to win. And he wanted us to win as much as he wanted to win. So he was going to push us any way he could. And the way he knew how to push us was, was really not that different than the way things were going, the way we all grew up with, you know, you get rewarded for good things and punished for bad things. And if, if he thought that maybe we were taking shortcuts or not focused in practice, he was going to let us know. And he was going to make it miserable on us. And, it would start off just by trying to embarrass us a little bit in practice, uh, dunking on us or uh, challenging us to step up to the plate. Or if it continued on uh, verbally afterwards, it would go even more. So for me, it was great because I, I think I, I like to think I understood it. Not that I'm smarter than anyone else, but I understood what was going on. And he was almost like that caring parent or big brother that was pushing me because he saw something in me that wanted me to be better, almost like a coach would. You own one of the best lines I've ever heard, and it was after Michael Jordan returned from his dalliance with baseball. It was the fifth game back. He dropped double nickels on the Knicks at Madison Square Garden, but you got the game-winning basket. He scored 55, you scored two, and you uttered, we combined for 57. So tell me a story I don't know. When did you know you had comedic talents? 
comedic talents. I don't know. I, I think I knew I was always a little bit funny. I know when I, when I go back and visited my dad, I, I think I see where I got it. Uh, he, he was, he, he was funny, had a dry sense of humor. And uh, I don't know if I took it a step further or on, but I knew that I could speak well. If you, if you remember back in the eighties, uh, Georgetown won the national championship. John Thompson wouldn't let the guys talk to the media at all. But after they won the national championship, they talked and it was Michael Graham and Patrick and, and the interview after the game wasn't complimentary. So the Big East implemented that all of us had to do media training. And I remember going at St. John's and it was before the season started. And basically what they did is they gave us media training and just practice media interviews. And in a way, it's a very good idea for uh, scholarship athletes. You're going to be interviewed a lot. and It's going to help them out a lot. I went up there for my first meeting. Of course, a college student, we're all complaining that now you're giving us another class that we got to go to, you know, uh, I went in for the first class, and I was—I remember our SID, Kathy Quinn, was there, and she had, she interviewed me for about 15 minutes, and she goes, all right, you're good to go. And I said, well, all right, what time, when do I have to come back now? Because I was one of the el uh, elders, I was one of the older players, and, you know, I, I, did, I didn't want to beg out and, you know, show the younger players that I didn't have to do it. She goes, no, you passed, you're good. I said, how can I pass? I didn't even do anything. She said, you're fine. <laughs> you, you can hand you can handle the questions you you don't have to come back major league baseball is underway and bet us is your home for every game plus the nba and nhl playoffs and the pga tour sign up now and first-time bettors will get a 125 percent bonus with our promo code story 22 that's story 22 future odds live betting and great parlay plays also await you at bet us bet us you bet you win you get paid go to betus.com and remember our code story 22 want to hear more great guests on tell me a story i don't know it's easy just follow me on social media at george offman that's o-f-m-a-n i'm on twitter facebook and instagram and please follow or subscribe to this podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you were born in Montreal. You lived there until you were 16. Uh, and of course, as we mentioned before, it's a hockey crazy city, but you got involved in a lot of sports before you finally turned to basketball. I, I did, George. And I, I part of that I give to my gym teacher, uh, uh, Mr. Ropaleski. I remember in gym class one time, yeah, early on, uh, we we're doing gymnastics that I could barely do a somersault. And, and he worked with me a little bit in class to, to get to do it. And then they were having a physical education demonstration. And he goes, Billy, I want you to come and be a part of the gymnastics. I looked at him like, are you kidding me? I said, I, I can't do anything. He said, yeah, well, we'll get it. So I, I remember jumping over a pommel horse and doing a somersault over across the, the horse. The, the big, it was a big box that you had top. Of. And he kind of got me to do it and said, you know, don't be afraid to try things. So I remember from that point on, I, I, I just did things. And I, whether I was good at it or not, I swam on a swim team. Uh, I, was, I was a very good swimmer, actually. That, that was uh, pretty good. My strokes were freestyle and uh, butterfly. And uh, I did very well with that. I played soccer early on, and I had never played before. I, I wasn't, and to this day, I'm not a huge soccer fan, but I thought it was fun. It was good, and I played goalie, and I was a pretty good goalie. And 
when they put me in, I guess my hand-eye coordination was good. Uh, the team I joined had not won a game. I think they were 0-4. And, and I started playing goalie. And I think we lost one more game the rest of the year to the playoffs. And then in the playoffs, in that game, I, I remember going out to stop a, a guy coming in on a fast break, and I dove for the ball. And the player missed the ball and kicked me in the head. I woke up on the sidelines and decided, no, I really don't need to play soccer anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that was your first concussion. That, that was, yeah, that was my first concussion. Uh, the other one early on, I was, uh, I played T-ball as, as most kids do. And I was a very good T-ball. You, you know, you hold the ball there on a little tee, I can hit it. And because I was so much bigger than all the kids my age, I hit the ball a lot further than they did. So uh, they ended up putting me a whole division up. So I had never played uh, pitch baseball in my life and they put me in pitch baseball. Now where everyone, the, the youngest player on my team and I played against was three years older than me. And they'd been playing pitch baseball for three years. George, I got on base twice that year. And I would like to say, I don't know why, but as I look back, I keep remembering my coach saying, Billy crowd the plate, get closer to the plate. <laughs> I got hit by two pitches. That's the only time I got on, on base. And so I didn't play baseball anymore after that either. You know, I'm, I'm curious, since you grew up in Montreal, how's your French? Uh, C'est pas bon, j'oublie beaucoup, mais mm. je peux parler un petit peu si tu veux. Could you translate that for me, please? Uh, I just made it up. It's all gibberish. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, though, doesn't it? No, I said, uh, you know what? It's not very good. I forgot a lot, most of it, but I could speak a little if you want me to. You wound up at St. John's playing under the legendary Lou Carnesecca. I remember many times that it was Ray Meyer and DePaul versus Lou Carnesecca and St. John's, and they were always really competitive games. But you also had a rather well-known roommate, Chris Mullins. So tell me a story I don't know about one particular night that may seem a whole lot odd to other people. That, that's an easy one for me. One, a lot of Chris Mullins stories. And he, one, he's a fantastic teammate and a, and a very close and dear friend and now in, in life. But we both were heavily recruited in New York. We're both uh, McDonald's All-Americans. And we had met in McDonald's all Actually, we'd met before that. My high school played uh, his high school in a exhibition game because he was part of the city league and I was out in Long Island in a, you know, in a private league. But uh, our first night, we had both going to St. John's. We we're going to be roommates together. And we're moving into our little off-campus apartment because St. John's at the time had no dorms. You know, his parents are there, my parents are there. They're moving in. We meet everybody. And all the parents leave. And uh, we went out. We grabbed a bite to dinner, uh, a dinner somewhere, I think, with our parents. And got back to the, our rooms. And it was like 7, 8 o'clock. And we're just starting to unpack stuff and put stuff in. We ended up, I'd say, at 10 o'clock, we're just lying in our beds talking. And we started talking. And by the time we were finished, it was 4 o'clock in the morning. We had talked about life, what it was like in high school, uh, things we did in high school, our friends, what we th thought about college, what was going to be like. And Chris knew a couple of the guys at St. John's a little bit because he'd grown up in New York and played against some of them. Uh, we both knew Coach Conasecker, obviously, and a couple of the assistant coaches being, through being recruited, but really didn't know a whole lot of what was going on. But our expectations for what we could do at St. John's, obviously, we both talked about getting to the NCAA tournament, winning the Final Four, 
and, and going on and, and possibly playing. And our dreams are both to play in the NBA and, and just make things happen. And yeah, all of a sudden it's like four in the morning. The next day we, we got to get up for classes the next morning. But I look back on that night and the memories I had and, and really the beginning of adulthood started for me and, and planning and setting goals and statements. But if you look at two 18-year-old men staying up till four o'clock in the morning, there wasn't a drop of alcohol or any women around. And we had, we both had great nights and some, uh, in my opinion, one of the best nights. And then Chris and I have talked about before, he enjoyed, he had a great night as well, but you know, without women or alcohol being involved, that really is kind of odd when you're talking about 18 year olds. So, you know, when you get to be our age, George, maybe that's a little bit more common, but back then I look back and say, you know, that was kind of a neat night and uh, really special in my heart and my mind. You were an Olympian, and in, in 1984, when the U.S. assembled a dream team, you guys played them uh, in uh, as part of Canada. Tell me your story. I don't know about that experience. You know what? That was uh, a great experience, obviously, the Olympics in Los Angeles. But uh, before that, the late, great Jack Donahue, uh, who coached the Canadian Olympic team and, and really helped me a lot with my development with basketball because it kind of made me play basketball uh, every summer for four years through college. but. We came to New York and played in New York City Summer League as part of our Olympic training. And it was very good. But in one, in, I think we were in New York playing uh, at, for a little over a week, almost two weeks. And near the end of the first week, I actually got undercut going up to dunk the ball, landed on my shoulder, and, and my head had a, a seizure on the floor. And I separated my shoulder mm. and we are less than a month away from the Olympics. And all I knew is like my shoulder was killing when I came to, uh, I was a little bit out of it. I spent uh, two nights in the hospital in New York and then I couldn't play for a while because my shoulder was hurt. And all I knew I wanted to be in the Olympics. And I knew two weeks after we finished there, we had to report to training camp in Canada and for a week or a week or two weeks, and then we would fly to Los Angeles for the Olympics. And I was so worried that I wouldn't be able to play and that uh, I would lose my spot on the Olympic team. But I was, uh, I worked hard. I did everything I was supposed to do and some and was able to play in the Olympics, which was a, a phenomenal experience. Jordan shot comes out. Swinnington, the rebound. He's a factor, Keith. I'm telling you, he's a hoss out there. He was the young man that took the severe fall back in the early training. They were playing in the summer league in New York City. He really took a fall, but came out of it all right. Tillman misses. Wiltshire gets a hand on it, and Winnington saves it. And Tillman gets another shot. To your question, that 84 Olympic team from the U.S. was a darn good basketball team. Uh, and everyone, everyone talks about the dream team and how, they, how good they were and, and I don't want to take anything away from that team. They were, they were phenomenal, but this was a college team that was really good. And, and, and they, they could pretty much do what they wanted to on the floor. And that was a lot of fun to play that against that team as well. So it's the 1985 NBA draft. The Dallas Mavericks select you number 16 in the first round. You played five years there. They traded you to Sacramento. You spent one year of hell there. Then you go overseas and you play in Italy. Now comes 1993, and you sign with the Bulls. Only Michael Jordan wasn't there. Well, when I signed with the Bulls, I didn't know that. 
Um, I had come just come off an Italian championship in Italy, and I wanted to get back in the NBA. At, at that time, George, the average NBA career was six years. I'd already played six years in the NBA. When it came down to it, Chicago offered me a one-month guaranteed contract to come to camp. Portland just wanted me to come to camps. And my, my, my theory was, well, if I go one month in November back in Italy, if things don't work out in the NBA, it, that's when the Italian teams kind of make their American changes. So if their American players aren't playing well, they cut them in November end of November and uh, bring new guys in. So I figured worst case scenario, I go back to Italy in November. Again, funny how things happen. I go to training camp. I'm one of five centers, Scott Williams, Bill Cartwright, Will Purdue, Stacey King, and myself. And they brought uh, Greg Foster in as well, uh, another big guy to, to fight for these spots. Well, lo and behold, Scott Williams gets hurt in training camp. So that kind of forced him to bring Bill Cartwright along a little quick. Bill Cartwright was going to miss training camp that year because he was a little bit older. Uh, again, a uh, week and a half, a week before training camp starts, Michael Jordan retires. I remember sitting in the gym uh, first or second day of practice and talking to Steve Kerr and Steve Kerr and where I talking, he goes, Billy, I guess we picked a fine time to come to Chicago because no one expected us <laughs> to do it that well. It, it, because Michael had gone. I, th I don't think anyone expected the Bulls to, to even make the playoffs if, if maybe the eighth seed. But uh, Scotty and, and the emergence of Tony Kukoc uh, really helped that team win 55 games. It was a great year. But I ended up uh, sticking on the team. And I'm like uh, the old Saturday Night uh, Live thing, the, the thing that wouldn't go away. I came in 1993, and they still can't get rid of me. I think I'm going to borrow this one. It came without warning. They were just being polite. They didn't realize that they'd be stuck with the thing that wouldn't leave. Vienna Beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog. Dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. I've mentioned Michael Jordan several times during this interview, but you also dealt with some very interesting personalities from Scottie Pippen to Tony Kukoc to Horace Grant to Ron Harper, Steve Kerr, you just mentioned. But we cannot leave out Dennis Rodman. Tell me a story I don't know or I may not want to know about the worm. You know what? 
Dennis is one of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. And one of the, one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. Uh, basketball wise, he's one of the smartest guys you could ever meet about basketball. Just really understands the game. Five seconds, four seconds. He'll put up the three. And Dennis liked to have fun, obviously. I think a lot of how he was became was an act that became him, or he grew into the act. But he did like to have fun. He liked to go out. But you'd go out with him if it was quiet. You would go to, we rode motorcycles, and we'd go to the couple of different restaurants in, in Chicago. We'd ride up from the suburbs where we both lived uh, because the Birdo Center was up in Deerfield. We'd ride into the city and, and kind of have a quiet quiet lunch or early dinner, just hanging out, not doing anything. And he was great. And I don't think people understand it, but the real thing, if you hung around him long enough, you saw that the people around him expected him to be a certain way. And he kind of became that. He introduced a little bit of alcohol and he started to become that a little bit. And he, he wanted to please people and he wanted to get people to do maybe things they wouldn't normally do. So he became the Dennis Rodman. We all saw on the news and that you either know and love or know and hate, but in all honesty, he's he's one of my favorite people. I know he was, other than myself, he was my mother's favorite basketball player. She loved him so much that she even had the Dennis Rodman dolls uh, going around, and she just loved his character and his spirit, and he really is a great person. If, if you're willing to understand him a little bit and just see how he really is, he's, he's one of the greatest guys you can know. A lot of what he did was to make money. Like, he was selling books and getting paid appearances. So that, that's, that's different. He, I, I went with him to a couple of his appearances and stuff, and they're all fine and dandy. Uh, but when we walked away, you know, I had a couple of beers, and he, he was getting $50,000. So uh, you give me $50,000, and I'll wear a mankini out. There you go. <laughs> we mentioned Lou Karnaseka, but, of course, you had Phil Jackson and his very able-bodied assistants. What was that like, and what did you take away from both of them? Well, a lot of their ideals were the same. And, and I think they both cared about us as people. Obviously, Louie very much so was a real father figure for us. Uh, Phil being a, a pro coach, a little bit different. So the relationship is different. But I really think they did care about us as people, both of them, Phil, even with his books. And, and you know, after a while, he tell you, I'm giving you these books for something else to do other than going out, staying out, uh, carousing till two, two to four o'clock in the morning. And yeah, selfishly, he wanted us to be able to play better and everything, but he, he did care about us. And the, the neat thing about both of them is they both expected balance in your life. And a lot with, with coach, uh, the family life, uh, the St. John's family and your family, your parents, your sisters, your teammates, we're all one big family. Uh, with with Phil, it was yes, our our, our wives, spouses, spouses, and, and kids, and then significant others. But mostly the twelve of us in a locker room, the coaching staff, the training staff, uh, we're the family, and we have to work together, stay together, live together, be together, and we have to do it in harmony. 
So that balance w- was really there. And they had, you know, different ways of doing it. Uh, Lou Conasecca, the Italian father figure, you know, the loving uh, guy, you know, calling you a schlunk and, and a, you know, getting your mind straight and Phil just having the balance of life with Zen Buddhism and the uh, Native American Indian heritage and and traditions uh, really gave a great balance. And and it's genius for both of them. If you really think about it to when you have guys that are coming from different walks of life, you know, St. John's having guys coming from the inner inner workings of Harlem, the suburbs, uh, myself from Canada, you know, Brooklyn, uh, New Jersey, and uh, all around to Chicago Bulls having a Canadian, an Australian, a Croatian, uh, guys from the city, guys from the suburbs. Uh, a great way to get guys to believe in each other, work work together, and learn about life, not through one particular part of life, but more of a, a Zen Buddhism, which none of us understood or knew, but we were all learning together at the same time. How would you characterize your career? For me personally, phenomenal. Uh, but you look back on it, it was good. I endured. I, I did a, a lot of things I don't think people uh, expected uh, of, of me. Uh, I think when I went to Italy, I think a lot of people thought I was pretty much done. Uh, I, I had a, a good coach, Atere Messina, over in Bologna, and uh, he was able to literally light a fire on my, under my butt and get the passion back in the game for me after that Sacramento season, which was really tough. It, it took a lot out of me to lose, but uh, and, and taught me, you know, and learning in high school with Bob McKillop that my mind could make my body do things that I didn't think were possible. So I, I overcame a lot uh, from growing up, changing countries, coming to a different country to, and playing basketball. And I don't want to say learning to play basketball, but learning to play basketball at the next level in New York, going to the parks, growing up and, and learning that. So I would characterize it as, as a very good career for me and, and overall basketball wise, but for me, phenomenal. Uh, I was exposed to a lot, stuck with it, and when it was able to be part of something that uh, people will talk about forever. You are a motorcycle enthusiast. So how did you get into this? And more importantly, do they have custom-made bikes built for seven-footers? George, as, as you know, if you have the money, you can have anything built. Shaq had a bike built that was uh, probably a $200,000 motorcycle. Oh, my. Uh, I don't have that. <laughs> uh, you know what? I've, I've wanted a motorcycle since before I got to Chicago. And it's a neat story. If we got time, I'll tell it. Uh, in Italy, a couple of my teammates wanted motorcycles. And a couple of them asked me, said, Billy, if you buy a motorcycle in when I was coming back the second year, if you buy a motorcycle in the United States and ship it back here, and you could ride it all season long. And then when you're done for the season, we'll buy it for you from you for twice the price you paid for it. That's how bad they wanted a Harley Davidson back in, uh, in over in Italy. And a couple of, a couple of guys, team, one of my teammates had a bike and two others wanted bikes. So uh, unfortunately, I couldn't do it because I, I was married and had a newborn baby in the house. And uh, I understand, you know, I had to go through my wife. And I'd been asking for a motorcycle for a couple of years. And I told her, the I think it was the second week of our, our practice that's that my second year there year there I told her I said look if we win the Italian championship I get to have a motorcycle she's like no you don't I said but I'll tell you what if we don't win it I will never bring this subject up again the rest of my life and I'll never get a motorcycle 
And she thought about it for she, she goes, deal. Well, George, we won the Italian championship. <laughs> lucky you. <laughs> lucky you. What a deal. <laughs> so lo and behold, we come, come back to Chicago. I'm on the team. I come to camp. I'm, I make the camp. And it's 1993. We're playing. We're doing well. And, you know, I forgot about it. My life, life goes on. But all of a sudden, I started remembering, like, in, you know, Phil rides a motorcycle. So I've seen him a little bit. Now it's like 94, 95. And I want to say it was in February. 90, I wanted a motorcycle. So I brought it up. And my wife says, no, that bet doesn't count. You can't do it. So I, the first time I really defied my wife in February, I went to Chicago Harley Davidson. I put a deposit down on having a motorcycle built for me. And uh, obviously a week or two later, she, when she looked at the bank account, she realized, why are we short some money? And I said, well, you know that motorcycle you said I could get? She's like, no. So I, I, I went, that's pretty much the only thing I did. I, I had a bike built. It was not uh, 200,000. It was actually, I'm the guy that spent $35,000, excuse me, to buy an $18,000 motorcycle because I had to have it custom built for me. Uh, I asked this final question to all my guests, Bill. If not for basketball, what would you have been? Uh, it, my wife hates it when I say this, but for some, I love driving. Uh, we drive back east to our summer home every summer with uh, the family in tow, dogs, kids, motorcycle. And I used to say I'd, I'd want to be a, a truck driver. Uh, but on, in all honesty, George, I would probably would have been a teacher uh, in some way. I, I love young people. I love seeing them when they the light bulb goes on and they get it. Uh, I have basketball camps every summer. And uh, I, I love the development of, of young people and seeing them grow. And it's that's a lot of fun to me. So I, I probably would have somehow got into the education field. You, sir, are an absolute joy to listen to from your analysis of the Bulls and some terrific stories. Thank you very much, Bill Wennington, for telling me a story I don't know. Always a pleasure, George. Thank you. My thanks to NBC Sports Chicago, WSCR The Score, ESPN's The Last Dance, NBC Sports, and ABC Sports for those memorable highlights. My thanks as always to TJ Reeves for being a guiding force behind this podcast, Will Hatzel for his expert editing and mixing, and Nick Tochi for our excellent graphics. And to our wonderful sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing, Vienna Beef, and BetUS for their significant contributions. Tune in next week for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. <laughs>